informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us here at Midweek, letting us be part of your day. We always appreciate it. Hope you're having a good day. Here's what we'll be talking about. Big focus today on watersheds and water transportation. We'll talk rivers. We're going to talk with the uh, executive director of the Soy Transportation Coalition, Mike Steenhook. We're also going to talk with the new executive director of America's Watershed Initiative. Now, the Watershed Initiative is a collaboration of a lot of business, government, academic, and civic groups, including the National Corn Growers Association, and they work on trying to find solutions to the challenges on the Mississippi River and its tributaries, and we know there are plenty of those challenges. That vital uh, waterway system that we have has plenty of challenges. We're going to talk with uh, Kim Lutz, who's the uh, new executive director for America's Watershed Initiative, and find about uh, what her goals are and uh, priorities. Also, we'll talk markets with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. All that coming up on today's program. But we're going to start things off as we've been doing the last several weeks, getting an update on CFAP, the Coronavirus Food Assistance uh, Program, and the uh, the funds that are going out through CFAP. Richard Fordyce, FSA Administrator, joins us again this week. Richard, good to talk with you again. How are things going? Well, good morning, Mike, and things are going well, I think. Um, You know, we continue to make progress on CFAP. Again, announcement on Monday of uh, $6.8 billion in payments to producers, and and this week in the update, um, just shy of 500,000 producers have have taken advantage of applying for, for CFAP and the and the benefits from CFAP. So uh, making making progress um, as we go along here and um, kind of excited about what's to come. Yeah, we're spending a lot of time talking about perhaps more assistance coming, but uh, that's not been decided on yet. So we're, we're trying to keep everyone up to date on what has been approved and what's going out. Now, I don't want to sound like a stuck record, but I'm going to ask you this again, because I look the last few weeks now, you've gone from 6.2 to 6.5 to 6.8. And I know some are saying, well, that's not going out very fast. Why is it taking so long? We've talked a lot about this. Uh, I know you, you've you cited uh, busy schedules by producers and and probably kept them from getting their applications in. Some, uh, like in the pork industry, have said they think uh, some of the paperwork is cumbersome and slows things down. Uh, what's your perspective on the pace of the payments going out? Well, you do make a good point, and and it's certainly something that you know that we're looking at and trying to analyze and understand. You know how many more producers really need to come in. Um, as you know, the program uh, the program has payment limitation um, provisions in the program, um, and and so you know again we we continue to look at that. And so let's let's use the pork sector for for an example and. You know, under the program, we're paying um, we're paying dollars per head. Um, but again, with those payment limitations that are that are part of the program, you know, has that affected some of the you know some of the total dollars that will go out? Certainly, it has. You know, our estimates had had actually factored those in to the best of our way to estimate that, right? So sometimes that's a little difficult to do, but. Um, but we had we had used um, whether you know whether it was non-specialty or the livestock or dairy or specialty crop categories. We we had tried to look at kind of the universe of of who 
you know, what, how, how large is that sector? How many producers could we anticipate coming in in those different um, categories? And then also, again, using the best, uh, the best numbers that we have, trying to estimate what, what the payments would be and, and also incorporate those payment limits and other things that, that go along with that program. Um, and so, you know, we, st- we know just, I mean, we're looking at NAS data. We're looking at comparing CFAP to, say, for example, MFP. And it's not a great comparison because the programs are different, um, but, but trying to understand the number of producers that can come in. We still feel like there are still producers yet to come in um, in those categories. Um, you know, again, it's, it's very difficult to predict payments because of that payment limit um, component in, in the program. But we continue to analyze it again. We think there are, there are still producers that uh, across uh, all of the categories yet to come in. Um, and then we also have, obviously, um, you know, that NOFA process that we've talked about, the notice of fun, funds availability, uh, where we were soliciting the, the public to make submissions on commodities to be added. And, you know, we anticipate an announcement in the coming weeks. I know we've talked about that before, too. Um, but, you know, we're expecting an announcement in the coming weeks of potentially adding some commodities and some crops, you know, that could change the, you know, change the, the trajectory of, of, where this, right. of where the program's going. Um, you know, we know that um, where we can do kind of a direct comparison either on what we know from production numbers, what we know from participation, say, in MFP, where we can align those, um, you know, we're getting a good percentage of, of some of those. Where we think we have a good, uh, a good way to compare, we think we're getting a good percentage of those producers in. But there still, there still are some yet to come in. And, you know, and again, we've talked about workload, um, you know, competition in the county offices. We are winding down acreage reporting. Um, so there are still other activities, obviously, that are, that are happening in, in those local county offices. Um, and so, you know, I think we'll just have to wait and see kind of where we are with the commodities that we know are in the program, and then where do we go with, um, you know, potentially added commodities and crops, um, you know, to see where that kind of takes us as well. But I would also um, just mention, um, you know, from, uh, from, from, any, from any producer's perspective, this is, you know, this program um, is a producer self-certification um, now I know that, you know, I know some producers, obviously any producer is going to have to look at their own individual records to understand sales numbers and those kind of things. And even on that livestock side, you know, what their inventories are on a certain day. Um, so they're going to have to, they're going to have to rely on their own records, but it is a producer self-certification. So it shouldn't be, the application process shouldn't be um, cumbersome from just from the perspective of applying. Now, Again, you know, the producer, because it is a self-certification, the producer is subject to a spot check, you know, at some point, a random spot check, and, and at that point, we'll have to, you know, we'll have to ask that producer for documentation to support, you know, the numbers that they put in their application. But, um, you know, from the very beginning of the stand-up of this program, we wanted it to try, we, we, we were, our, our attempt was to make it as, as, as least cumbersome as possible. Um, not only for the producer, but also for our staff to be able to implement it. All right. Well, uh, not knowing when Congress will decide on the next package, but uh, you may have a new package to start administering before you get this, this one done. 
Well, I mean, that's that's likely, isn't it? Um, and yeah, so, the way it's going. You know, I know those, con- those conversations are happening. Um, you know, and again, as a reminder, the current CFAT program um, looked at a period of time, which was either quarter one or January to April. Right. Uh, and certainly we know we've got, we've got impacts that, that extend beyond that for sure. Right. Richard, thanks as always for your time. And if it works out for you, we'll talk again next week with another update, okay? That sounds fantastic. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Richard. Richard Fordyce, FSA Administrator. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, we are a step closer, it seems, to a very critical infrastructure project, the deepening of the Lower Mississippi River. Joining us now to talk about it is Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, thanks for joining us again. So how close are we to this actually getting started? Fortunately, we're very close. Uh, The Army Corps of Engineers, which is the federal agency responsible for this project, along with uh, the main non-federal sponsor, the state of Louisiana, they signed their agreement this past Friday, officially kicking off the project. And so it look, the, the plan is now to start the actual dredging work in one of the problematic areas near the Gulf of Mexico where the Mississippi River starts to enter into the Gulf of Mexico, deepening that portion of the river starting uh, by latest fall of this year with a completion time for that portion of the project, fall of 2021. So this is very much on the front burner, and we're really excited about it. And this is the the area of the country that accounts for 60% of soybean exports, 59% of corn exports. That's by far the number one export region for both commodities. So by making this part of our maritime highway more competitive, it's kind of like adding new lanes to a maritime highway. Um, you're going to be able to load ships heavier, uh, improving the economics of our export channel. Uh, that's going to be very positive for the competitiveness of the U.S. soybean farmer, the U.S. corn farmer. How much are they going to uh, take out? Uh, when you talk about uh, improving the depth there, how much depth are they going to add? Yeah, the, the current channel, which starts at Baton Rouge, Louisiana, it's a 256-mile stretch of the lower river. So it starts at Baton Rouge, Louisiana, goes past New Orleans into the Gulf of Mexico. That current channel is at at least a 45-foot depth. And what we will now be doing is increasing that an additional 5 feet to 50 feet. And every foot is, is consequential. By adding that additional 5 feet in depth, you know, our estimations are that you can load 500,000 additional bushels of soybeans per vessel. A typical export vessel will handle, you know, a little over 2 million bushels of soybeans. So an additional 500,000 bushels is, is really consequential. And that in a tight margin industry, you're just you're improving the economics of our industry. You're adding more revenue-producing freight per vessel making ourselves more competitive, and we need every advantage right now during these very challenging times. So we're, we're very excited to see this project officially move forward. That's interesting. It, it doesn't sound like much. Well, you're going you're gonna to 
uh, increase the depth by five feet. That doesn't sound like that much, but as you, you point out, each foot makes a big difference. It does, you know, and, and you know, with, with, a, with a tight margin industry like agriculture, you know, we, we, have a, we have a tight margin, a tight profit margin, but we make our money by multiplying that tight profit margin by millions and billions of bushels. And so any chance you can to add, you know, remove cents on the delivered price to our customers, it's something that's just going to really be advantageous to us. And, you know, we need to keep in mind that our competitors, most notably Brazil, they continue to make investments in their infrastructure. And we just we have to make sure that we're not lackadaisical in investing in our infrastructure. If if we don't continue to make these kind of investments, we will find a time where we're no longer the most economical choice among our international customers. So investment is not a one-time activity. It needs to be a perpetual activity. This project is an excellent example of something we're actually doing right. And we want to point out again that the U.S. soybean farmers – have made an investment into this project. Yeah, and I, the the United Soybean Board and the farmer leaders that govern it, they made an investment of $2 million to help underwrite the cost of this project. There's a, a, a 75% federal cost share component of this project, a 25% non-federal. The state of Louisiana is the main non-federal entity, but United Soybean Board came, leaned in, and, and they invested $2 million to help underwrite the cost of this project. And it really just shows that the strategic mindset of these farmer leaders. During a challenging time like this, the temptation is to lean back, to be passive or, or tepid in, in investing in your own industry. The farmer leaders of the United Soybean Board decided to lean in and be more aggressive. And as a result, this, it was very instrumental in trying to get this project moving forward, getting farmer engagement was really critical, getting greater Midwestern support for this project, not just Louisiana support. And so that was really consequential, and um, it just really shows that kind of forward-thinking mindset. Farmers really want to – they're bullish on their industry in the midst of all of these challenges, and so they just really show that they're, they're really fully committed to their industry, and I think they need to be commended for that. We're talking with Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. Mike, here we are, early August, harvest not that far away. Uh, what about some of the infrastructure projects on the uh, waterway system that are being done this summer, and we're looking to see if they're going to be done in time for for fall harvest? So where do we stand with some of that? Yeah, the, the ones that are most uh, notable right now is there's a there's a set of five locks and dams on the Illinois River that are experiencing major rehabilitation work and the plan is to have all of that completed by the end of October so that even if it is completed as scheduled by the end of October that's still going to be an inconvenience for the soybean and the and the grain supply chain we're just wanting to make sure it doesn't extend beyond late October. Um, this is very important work, and it's significant work, so you can't just get it done in a day. It takes some time to actually complete it, and we're happy that the work is actually proceeding. Um, at the end of the day, we anticipate having a better capitalized, better maintained, more reliable Illinois River, which is uh, which is one of the important arteries for 
soybeaning and corn farmers. And so it's it's really critical. It's something that we have been advocating for for a number of years, the barge industry, um, agriculture broadly. And so we're happy that we finally seen we're seeing it get done. And so um but we're it's something we're gonna continue to monitor. Um and we're just cer- certainly hopeful that it be, there won't be too many delays. It looks like it should be done by the end of October. Yeah, good news, bad news. Good news, it's getting done. Bad news, it may not be done quite as quickly as we would like. Yeah, you know, and it's just kind of the reality of when, you know, you'll have a bridge or a stretch of road that has a lot of potholes and, and it really causes inconvenience and delay and 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 hardship. So you're you're happy when it you're happy you need it need it to be remedied you need it to be rehabilitated but during that actual time when you have the detour and you have increased congestion congestion it's kind of an inconvenience but at the end of the day once it's finally completed you're happy it got done so we're kind of in that period right now where it is an inconvenience but we will be happy when it's finally done and finally any movement at all in Washington on a, a national infrastructure package? There, they're still continuing to debate it. Um, you know, I think the good news is that there's a real desire to do something about it before September 30th of this year, the end of the of the federal fiscal year. But um, you know, the, what concerns me is that with each passing day. Um, you get closer and closer to an election and where politics increasingly overrides our ability to do meaningful policy work. And so it's really important for advocates for a quality system of roads and bridges to to remain adamant that we need to have something passed. Um, It's really critical for our industry, critical for the broader economy. And, you know, as I've said before, one of the things I've learned from farmers is that if you waste time today, you may not recover it tomorrow. Farmers understand that if the weather conditions are favorable today, get the work done today because you don't know if you'll have that opportunity tomorrow. The same rule applies when it comes to policy in Washington, D.C. Get If you have an opportunity to get something done today, take advantage of that because you don't know mm-hmm. as days pass you may not have that opportunity tomorrow and in the future. So really critical to get something done on, on surface transportation, making sure that we don't just focus on the needs of urban America, but we also focus on the needs of rural America. All right, Mike. Thanks for the update. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Mike Steenhook, Executive Director of the Soy Transportation Coalition. We'll continue our look at the work on the waterways we're going to talk next with the new executive director of america's watershed initiative that's next stay with us you're listening to aoa information america's farmers and ranchers need to know Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, we continue to watch the negotiations in Washington, D.C. on the next uh, coronavirus assistance package and especially what is in it and how it is structured for agriculture. We know overall there's a lot of, uh, uh, there are a lot of issues they're still working out, unemployment benefits being one of them. But on the ag side, there are some issues, of course, about 
how much authority USDA has overseeing overseeing the the money? Do they you just turn it over to USDA and let them uh, make the decisions, or will there be more guidance, more direction for USDA? So that's a big difference between the House bill and the Senate bill. They are still working on that uh, funding for. SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, that's still a big part of the negotiations. Um, Democrats are wanting expanded domestic food aid, and uh, that would include a temporary increase in SNAP benefits, so they are still working on that as well. So the hope is by the end of the week they'll have a package done, but uh, no one knows that for sure, and we know that the There's some big differences here, a lot of politics at play, and uh, we'll see what they get done. We'll keep you updated. We'll have more on that coming up on tomorrow's program. Right now, though, we're happy to have with us the new Executive Director of America's Watershed Initiative. Joining us now is Kim Lutz. Kim, thank you for joining us, and congratulations on the new position. Thank you. My pleasure. I know uh, we're having some phone problems uh, that your phone is cutting out a little bit, so hopefully it'll it'll hang in there for us. Uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about the Watershed Initiative. Uh, certainly there are a lot of entities, including groups like the National Corn Growers, involved in this initiative. Absolutely. There are literally hundreds of businesses, government organizations, academic and civic organizations that have all been working with America's Watershed Initiative to try to chart a course for a healthy, sustainable Mississippi River watershed. And what is uh, what is your approach as you come into this position as executive director? What are what are the priorities and the issues that you hope to be able to address uh, as soon as possible? Yeah, absolutely. Well, number one is um, I need to do a lot of listening and learning um, while I have done quite a bit of multi-state watershed work. It hasn't been in the Mississippi River watershed. So I've got a lot of people to get to know, a lot of partners to get acquainted with and to learn from their experience. So that's number one on my list. The next uh, objective is to complete our second Mississippi Basin watershed report card. We hope to have that out later this year, and that'll be our second report card. The first was issued in in 2015, and that's a look at all kinds of issues facing the watershed, everything from transportation to recreation to water supply to the economics of the basin. And then I'll be really looking at how can we enhance and inform collaborative efforts across the whole basin. And that really is the challenge, isn't it, Kim? I mean, you've got a lot of stakeholders. Uh, you, you basically need to find ways to bring them all together, working uh, with each other instead of against each other. Absolutely. And the, the good news is that my predecessors already have done a great job of starting that collaboration. In 2015, when we developed the first scorecard or report card for the basin, there were over 700 attendees of various meetings in all the sub-basins and along the main stem, really united 
to try to solve problems together. And it's really only through hearing all the voices from all the different sectors that make up the basin where we're going to really achieve uh, some great results in trying to, one, listen, to hear what people are really concerned about, articulate those in a way, and articulate those in a way people can take action on it. We're talking with Kim Lutz, the new executive director of America's Watershed Initiative, as we look at the the challenges of uh, working on uh, the Mississippi River watershed. Uh, part of the challenge, Kim, is, and we mentioned the diversity of groups that are involved in the initiative, but uh, they look at that watershed uh, from their from their own perspective of of different needs, different uses within that watershed. So finding common ground that's that's always the challenge. Absolutely. And uh, another good news story is that I've had a lot of experience um, with multi-state watersheds. I've worked in the southeast part of the country and the northeast part developing multi-state watershed coalitions on the Savannah River in Georgia and South Carolina and in the northeast in the four northeastern states of Massachusetts, Connecticut, Vermont, and New Hampshire to really talk to all constituencies and come up with shared goals. But the really exciting bit for me is I spent quite a bit of my childhood in the Mississippi River Basin, both in Illinois and Wisconsin. So now I'm excited to have this opportunity to bring together coalitions in the fourth largest watershed in the world. How do you see agriculture's role in this process? Oh, critical role. Um, I'm sure your listeners already know these facts and figures. I'm, I'm on day three on the job, so, so I'll, I'll consult my notes. But my understanding is the basin produces 92% of the nation's exports, and barges and tows move uh, almost 200 million tons of freight through the Mississippi system each year. So the economics and transportation sector are just critical to a healthy, thriving Mississippi River watershed. We've seen at times over the years uh, that we talked about these varying uh, uses of a, of a watershed and the approach to taking care of the watershed. Sometimes uh, there have been some sharp differences on how it's managed and how how decisions are, are made. Uh, you talk about listening and bringing all those uh, parties together. Uh, there, there is some uh, history there that will have to be worked through as well, some areas that haven't uh, always gone so smoothly in the past. So that will be part of the process. Absolutely. And I think it's really only through listening to each other and learning from those differences of opinions. Uh, that's when we really learn. When we, when we deeply listen, we understand the ways uh, – the ways that people think, the different experiences they have. And one of the things I'm really excited about, about America's Watershed Initiative, is it really looks at all the different sectors that make up a healthy, thriving, sustainable watershed. So while I've worked a lot in conservation, I'm very excited to uh, take an integrated approach to really hearing all the voices in this watershed and coming up with shared solutions from that knowledge. Do you support voluntary efforts, or do you think uh, are we headed to more uh, mandated uh, efforts when it comes to taking care of a watershed? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, in 
in my experience on the Savannah and on um, the Connecticut River watershed, it was primarily voluntary action. Uh, but I do think there there can be roles for um, I, I really would rather not call them mandated actions, but policy guidance that uh, gives people action steps to take. Well, certainly there's a lot at stake, that's for sure, and a lot of stakeholders. So uh, uh, you have a, a challenging job ahead, but it sounds like you have a, a good background for handling it. Uh, is there anything we should be watching for? Do you think there'll be any action or you hope to uh, take any steps here uh, right away? Well, I think one of the most exciting pieces for me is the, the release of the second report card. As I mentioned, there was an initial report card issued for the watershed in 2015. And really the purpose of, of that report card is to give people a snapshot, to give folks the data, a baseline of uh, what's happening in these various sectors in the basin, and then to provide a platform for further discussion. So we'll be having the second report card coming out probably sometime this fall, and I hope that is an opportunity to spur even further discussion. We also hope to have a series of webinars following the release of the report card to really give people uh, even greater opportunity both to learn more about the basin and the challenges facing the basin, but also to engage in that discussion to come up with shared solutions. Well, you've got a lot of people to meet and get to know and let them get to know you then, right? Ab- absolutely. My, my uh, um, calendar is already packed with calls uh, from people from all over the basin. I'm sure your listeners know it's a 31-state basin and the America's Watershed Initiative is really one of the only groups that's looking to to really understand the entire basin. There's lots of great efforts on parts of the basin, but we're trying to look at that huge picture of all 31 states. Yep, it's a big job. It's a critical job, and we wish you well, and we'll look forward to talking with you uh, uh, in the future. Kim, thank you very much, and good luck to you. Well, my pleasure. Thank you so much for affording me this opportunity to chat with you, and I do look forward to telling you more about our work on a future call. Okay, we'll be in touch. Thank you. That's Kim Lutz, a new executive director of America's Watershed Initiative, and again, that's a collaboration, a lot of stakeholders in the Mississippi River watershed. Huge area and a lot at stake there. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk crop progress and markets with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. Get his thoughts, get his outlook. That's coming up next. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, let's talk things over with Matt Bennett with agmarket.net. We're talking about, uh, first of all, crop conditions around you in East Central Illinois. Things looking pretty good, right, Matt? Yeah, things look really good. I mean, there's no doubt that we probably had a little bit too much rain, if that's such a thing. Um, Last week, a lot of folks in my part of the world had 
anywhere from uh, five to six and a half inches of rain. And so, uh, you know, of course the ponds are going to be gone, but man, where the corn and beans are going to be good, they're going to be good. So I think tile's going to pay off pretty good this year. Fungicide's going to pay off pretty good this year. I don't think there's any, I don't think there's any question whatsoever in my part of the world that we're going to have above, uh, you know, probably close to record crops, if not record crops, both on corn and beans. Several areas, not all, but several areas will be very similar to that. So the markets are no doubt taking note of that. Oh, absolutely. You know, whenever you see the kind of rainfall pattern we've had, you know, obviously Iowa's been shortchanged. You know, you look at the drought monitor, and there's no doubt that there's parts of Iowa way too dry. And I think several of us have seen some of the pictures circulate the last couple of days, uh, you know, like in north central Iowa and in western Iowa where, you know, they're excessively dry. But other than that, you know, there's a lot of areas that have been blessed with the rainfall they needed. Uh, You know, and, and bottom line, we had a good spring. Last fall, we had a good fall. So we really set the table up well for a big crop, uh, you know, and whenever you get that kind of rainfall that comes through whenever you need it, uh, that does nothing but cement your opportunity to, to have just, you know, really a bumper crop. So short term, when you look at a marketing standpoint, you count on bushels, you count on volume to offset the lower price, although we know the volume tends to lead to the lower price. It does, and I mean, this is where it gets tricky, Mike. You know, as far as soybeans are concerned, I think it's a little easier. You know, if you if you look at no beans at eight seventy eight, you know, and some of these uh, bids, you know, uh, are not too bad for fall beans when you take them times your updated yield. Like for instance, if you take sixty five bushel APH and you say, well, you know, I think I might have seventy five bushel beans. Ten bushel more beans lowers your break even price for beans substantially but you go over to the corn side of the equation you know and you're sitting here oh gosh you're what 67 cents below the spring insurance price you know and you're and you're trying to figure out you know how to balance uh, making a sale versus you know anybody that doesn't have above APH yields has got to be really cautious as to let that insurance claim get away from them but uh, it's a very tricky game trying to sell corn in here because you know down here you're below three dollar cash prices for most of us in this part of the world uh, you know, in, in those kind of price levels, you need one heck of a yield uh, to be able to make things work unless you're counting on some outside income, either your insurance, PLC, or, or some sort of, a, you know, aid payment again. Mm-hmm. So we look at uh, then the demand side, some big buys by China, but that hasn't got the market too excited. No, I mean, we couldn't even raise an eyebrow with a 2 million metric ton uh, sale you know, you come in here and we're up three or four cents for a little bit, and then we settle up a, a half a penny last week. I mean, that was pretty tough to watch. But I've got to think that the Chinese, you know, they, they've uh, these government auctions. You know, they've sold 35 to 40 million metric ton of corn. Every single bit of corn that they've put on auction has been sold, and so uh, that tells you that uh, they need the corn. Uh, the people over there that are using corn, their interior corn prices are sky high, record high as far as corn's concerned, and so. You know, they can buy U.S. corn and sell it over there and make money at it. So I've got to think they're going to continue to buy U.S. corn. You look at what the dollar's doing today, you know, and that does nothing but uh, bolster that argument that I'm making. I mean, we're down here at 92.62. Uh, I mean, down uh, 7.75 on the day. I mean, this dollar just continues to get hit. And then inflation. I mean, we're, we're seeing some inflationary uh, indications, you know, whether you look at gold, silver, uh, you know, you look at crude. There's There's some things that could – support us but mike when you're talking 183 bushel national yield like some people are saying that's pretty tough to get the markets excited sounds like a lot of 
corn especially uh, going into the bin this harvest if those bins are all cleaned yeah, think, out from last year's yeah i think so i mean you, you you stop and look for instance right now the spread from these to july you know it's at 27 and a half cents uh i've got to think that thing might be 35 or 40 uh you might end up seeing one heck of a spread because you know you got to remember we're carrying in a little bit more corn as per the june 30th quarterly stocks report we're going to carry in a little more corn than what we thought we were going to uh, previously, and then you've got this enormous crop, you know, where are you going to put it? And so, um, you know, I've got to think it'll be very interesting. Uh, uh, the market's going to have to encourage producers to put it in the bin. Uh, whether that's going to pay big dividends or not remains to be seen, but by all means, I want to pay attention to the spreads, and I want to pay attention to what basis is doing, because I think that, uh, you know, if you don't, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be sorry you didn't pay attention to those things. And we watched the ethanol industry. We were concerned about, uh, you know, now they're talking about it. could there be another shutdown coming, and and that would depress driving even more, and that hurts demand. On the other side, we also wait, when we talk China, wait to see if they're going to buy any ethanol. So a lot uh, really hangs around on that uh, on that ethanol market, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's no question. You know, last week was the highest that we'd seen corn usage for ethanol. Uh, you know, since before coronavirus, and uh, last week was 12 out of 13 weeks in a row that we've actually used more corn to make ethanol, and so we've got to hope that trend might be able to continue. Now, obviously, shutdowns might change that, but it seems to me like even with some of the fervor over uh, the issues that we're having with some of the resurgence of cases, it seems to me like uh, most people feel like we've got enough control over it. We're not going to have to go to near the shutdown procedures we had previously. Now, I could be wrong about that. Uh, but uh, certainly I, I hope that that's not the case because uh, it, it wouldn't be good for any of us, whether you're looking at the ethanol industry or for those uh, people that are around ethanol plants, their basis certainly would be falling apart in that situation. Mm-hmm. All right, Matt, good to talk with you. Thanks for the update, and we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. Take care. Matt Bennett with Ag Market. Net. With that, we'll wrap it up for today. Now, coming up tomorrow, we'll get updates on the negotiations for the next coronavirus assistance package, and especially from the agricultural standpoint of it, and also a look at this dispute between the U.S. and Brazil over ethanol tariffs and what's at stake there. So that's coming up tomorrow. In the meantime, have a great day and join us again tomorrow right here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. 